Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a Kingkiller Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, episode 23, Gear Acquisition Syndrome is Real, where we will be looking at chapters 49 and 50 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of the cycle of debt. It's time for our quick explanation of the show. Each week we will be examining a section of the book The Name of the Wind through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text to apply to our real lives. Now, if you don't know this yet, you might want to start with episode one, or three, because three got better, but one starts off the story. At the end of our show, we will take some time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text with an Aristotelian phronemos of the week, and then we will expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact. Finally, we will wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. Before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books, though as usual, we're not opposed to it if such an arrangement were to come to pass. Second of all, our discussions are going to naturally assume some level of familiarity with the main books, The Name of the Wind and The Wise Man's Fear, as well as some of the other ancillary novellas and short stories in the continuity. Or you're just a weird time traveler who already knows everything that's going to happen because it's already happened for you. It's already your past. Needless to say, beyond this point, spoilers ho. <laughs> there will probably be more than a couple of spoilers for the slow regard of silent things, mostly because we just reread it. And finally, a word to our community. While it's perfectly fine to critique the text as you read it, it's not at all okay to abuse the author responsible for it. Now it is time for our 45-second recap, and this time it is Phoenix's turn. And as always, if she doesn't make it, she's going to be eating raspberries. Yuck. Yuck, 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 yuck. Well, if you come in under 45 seconds, you don't have to worry then, now do you? But there are so many details in this section. That's not my problem now, is it? <sniffs> All right, so I've got the stopwatch ready. You ready? I don't know. One way to find out. In three, two, one, go. We start with a long and somewhat misleading musing about how to approach the mysterious woman that is almost certainly Denna, though there is speculation that Quoth may be referring to Ari or Davy. Quoth explains the university's convoluted tuition system that is based on one's ability to do well on an oral exam consisting of up to nine subjects, and then he blames him and Brandor for his own lack of knowledge. His tuition gets set just above his means. Thanks, Ambrose. That candle just costs Quoth even more now. This forces Quoth to seek out a galen. Think a cross between a payday lender and a loan shark, because no reputable lender would get Give him any money. We're given a heavy-handed, expect a big burly man lead up to Davy's introduction. And Kel Surprise, our Gaelic is a cute pixie-like strawberry blonde-haired girl who demands Quoth's blood to secure a loan that is bigger than he needs or wants. Quoth storms off with an F this on his lips and then gear acquisition syndrome strikes. So instead of doing the sensible thing and saving his remaining funds, he spends nearly all of it on a crappy little loot and then goes back to Davy with even more debt. And you're well over. So I think it's time for some raspberries. 
<sighs> so at this point, we have probably already solicited raspberry flavored ideas from our community on Twitter. If you want to help choose future punishments, maybe follow us there. Or don't. I don't want your suggestions. I tried so hard. Now you don't want suggestions, but when it was cherry stuff, you were all gung-ho for it. Cherry ripe is good. Cherry ripe is still in this room. Want some? Never. I don't know what's wrong with you. You'll happily eat some of the most vile shirt you could find. But then the mere suggestion of having to eat the most delightful fruit in the world sends you running in fear. Not fear. Disgust. <laughs> well, I think we're going to have some fun with this on Twitter. Uh, I run our Twitter. I have access to our Twitter. Blech. Anyway, <laughs> I don't want to think about it. Let's go on. All right, so our lens this week is the cycle of debt, which is really what you have right now, except it's raspberry-themed. <laughs> no, because once I pay that debt, I'm not necessarily still in debt. So debts oftentimes can be things that end up controlling a lot of our decision-making, whether it's student loans, mortgage payments, car payments, or just credit cards. Side note, if you do have student loans that are provided by the U.S. government, you might want to check on them for pandemic reasons. So in this section of the book, we start with Quoth going through his first admissions as a student. And we already see that his behavior has created a kind of debt with many of the masters. First of all, that grudge that Hem bears towards him, that's a debt right there. That's one I don't think he's crawling out of. And part of that is because he never makes any actual effort to apologize. Accurate. And he also, of course, has his debt with Lauren, thanks to the candle incident. Thanks, Ambrose. And again, this is something that he has never apologized for. He's only ever made excuses for. That's not how you pay off a debt like that. As Hank Green once said in a video, do not apologize like a fart bag. I'm sorry you feel that way is not an apology. I'm sorry I did that. That's an apology. He doesn't even go to, I'm sorry you feel that way. He doesn't even say, I'm sorry. He just says, my actions were completely justified and I feel no remorse for them. Or, he started it. Or if I do feel any remorse for this, it's only in the fact that I no longer get what I want. Exactly. He's already starting in a debt. He's in the hole as it is right now, and it's only with Kilvin's strenuous <laughs> objections that it probably gets talked down as low as it does. Yeah, his tuition, which, let's just say, real clear here, the variable tuition based on how intelligent you are, kind of mirrors how you could get a scholarship for being a really smart person or really good at filling out those essays or being a woman in STEM. That's a whole different conversation. Anyway, it only kind of mirrors that. Having your tuition set lower 
Because of your ability to answer a trick question and test well in an oral exam, oh, that's kind of rough. I also gotta say here, his whole thing about him asking questions that have two answers. Or more than two answers. Trick questions. A lot of these are things where he could say, one way to look at it is this, or it could be looked at another way. That's how you can get around those, but he doesn't actually think that way. Oh no, I'm sure that after the fact he thinks that way because hindsight and 2020 and all of that stuff. But the way that he phrases everything is him and Brandor have a grudge against me and therefore they ask trick questions just to trip me up so that they could raise my tuition, so that they could screw me over. Never actually thinking that, hey, if he was so smart, he could have talked his way out of these tricks. This is an oral exam. This isn't something where you have to fill out a Scantron. You have the ability to go into subtleties. Quoth doesn't do subtle. Right, he does not. He doesn't understand subtle. And anytime he doesn't understand it, he writes it off as a problem from the other person. Uh, once again, I think that he is misjudging Lauren and believing that Lauren has it out for him because of his stupidity. <laughs> I think Lauren approaches things with that true neutral outlook. I also think that he's going to be much more reticent about going to bat for Quoth and giving him the benefit of the doubt that he had before. So instead of speaking in Quoth's favor, Lauren simply didn't intercede on his behalf. He might have been more willing to do had Quoth not endangered the sanctity of the archives. Lauren earlier gave Quoth the benefit of the doubt in the first interview, and his rational neutrality helped tip the balance. In this case, because of Quoth's behavior, he could simply not intercede at all one way or the other, leaving the others to actually figure it out. Once again, though, Quoth sensed disapproval. Quoth's senses are horse hockey. You know, we were actually having an interesting conversation the other day about just this sort of thing, where Patrick Rothfuss was discussing his ADHD with a podcast interviewer, where he discussed a condition that he experiences called rejection-sensitive dysphoria. People with this condition are more likely to perceive otherwise neutral expressions from other people as ones of disapproval or rejection. And here we've got someone who is completely passive in their face, like they're Spock-like. They're neutral. Right. And effectively a blank canvas. And they're like this in just about everything. I mean, Lauren is described as impassive as a graystone. And so Quoth, who I think has a similar condition, is reading rejection and disapproval where maybe none exists. And it can be a really exhausting thing to go through. I can have some empathy for Quoth on this. I think there are parallels to some of the anxiety that I've gone through where you try to predict an unpredictable person, but then you also try to predict everyone regardless because you want to please them. Whether or not you say you want to please them, whether or not you acknowledge that you want to please them. And I think above all, there are two masters, maybe three, that Quoth really 
wants approval from that he has not yet gotten any approval from. Because mind you, Kilvin loves him. Arwell likes him. He knows that. Elodin? Herma? Because languages. And Lauren. He wants Lauren to love him because he is so interested in all of the books. He wants this so bad and to feel like he's getting rejected constantly by the one master that controls his fate on whether or not he can do research. Oh, that has to be extremely excruciating. And when your prediction algorithm is being calibrated against the likes of Elodin, who is... Charitably unpredictable. Yes. <laughs> well, your prediction algorithm is going to spit out some weird results. So the result of all of this is that Kvothe can't afford his tuition, kills the priest. Not only that, but even if he could afford his tuition, he'd have to sleep outside. Yeah, he's just eight jots shy. Which I have no concept of how money equates, but that sucks. Because I have been less than two grand away from paying off a debt, in this case a car, and having little to no income, having no possibility of having anyone give me any money because the person that I was with before had tanked my credit and I didn't have an income. And it was like four payments away from being done. I was so angry. But I also did not resort to going to a payday lender and I did not resort to doing anything incredibly stupid. Although I did wind up trading the car that I loved for one that could not go up a shallow incline in the snow. I remember that car well, and I also remember the feeling of elation when we traded it in. Yes. <laughs> and that actually kind of brings us to the little bit of advice that he has from his father, which is the two most surefire ways to lose a friend are to be a borrower or to be a lender. Only if the person paying it back is unable to pay it back, not even unable to pay it back, but makes decisions like instead of paying his debt, buying an instrument. When we get to that point, we will have some discussions about gear acquisition syndrome, which is something that both of us suffer from. It true. I counted the musical instruments in the room that we are recording in. Yep. We got it bad. Mm. Not as bad as some, but... We've got it. That's for sure. But there have been other times where I have lived in a situation where I had my purse strings so tight trying to make sure that I wasn't doing anything dumb. And eventually it burst. And instead of doing something that would be smart for my future, I was impulsive and used my money for retail therapy rather than actually doing the thing that would have been smart in the long run. I've been there too. <laughs> so one of the things that I take from this is for one, when you go to someone to lend money to you, they're only ever giving money with the expectation that you will pay it back. Not always, but professionals, yes. If you ever feel like you want to help a friend and you, quote, loan them money, never expect to get it back. <laughs> Make sure it's something that you don't need back. Yeah. 
make sure that whatever the outcome is, failure to get repayment on it won't damage the friendship. Now, further on, he says something a little bit more telling. He said, besides, I did my best to keep my desperate poverty to myself. Pride is a foolish thing, but it is a powerful force. Accurate. Because, again, in the same example I already used, one of my friends was willing to pay off my car loan, knowing that they could set up something that would be less arduous for me to pay them back. And I said no, and instead had a really crappy car for a year. The pride aspect, I think, is probably Quoth's biggest obstacle here. Because that's what really stops him from actually talking about his needs. And it's okay to have needs. I think that's something in our society that we're conditioned not to talk about. I know that I always get really uncomfortable talking about financial difficulties on my own part. Or just finances. Not even difficulties. Right. I hate talking about money of any kind. In this way, you are way different from Quoth. Yes. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> but I can also understand that feeling of insecurity. And especially when he's around people who have much higher means than he does. Just about everyone else that he associates with comes from at least a comfortable middle class background, if not higher. But at this point... He's kind of over a barrel and he needs to figure out what he's going to do. And his past informs his present. He lived in Tarbian, in the shirty parts of Tarbian. And the things that he learned were shady at best. He learned about Galets, which is something that Sim doesn't even know what they are. They are loan sharks. They will fork you up if you do not pay them back. Pat does a heavy-handed job of making you expect some form of burly dude that is going to physically harm Quoth if he doesn't pay back his loans. Either that or some really small dude with big henchmen. But regardless, he refers to Galitz as men and states that they are all over the river in Emre. Emre is a, quote, haven for the arts which is in contrast to the studious, somewhat mystical nature of the university. I found the description of the dichotomy between the two to be rather interesting. It seemed like the ongoing feud between the STEM departments and the liberal arts departments. <laughs> what I find interesting is that right now, there are a lot of people pointing out just how underpaid artists, authors, musicians, creators in general are because our works are underappreciated. But in this time where a lot of people are being forced into boredom, the things that they are turning to are books, music, videos, movies. And a lot of us are buying handmade items, but also a lot of us are using this time to learn new craft skills. That thing that you have been wanting to draw for a year, well, now you have time if you are mentally able to. It's terrible that we think that we have to be productive in this time. We're all grieving for things that are lost. That's beside the point. But the thing is, we are all 
turning toward creative works to help assuage our own hurt and our own boredom. And those creative works are what are helping us make sense of things. They're what make it bearable. And there's this stereotype of the starving artist. And the fact is that people oftentimes complain about the cost of artistic things. So people complain that a painting is too much or going to see a piece of theater costs too much or going to a movie is too expensive. Or handmade clothing or plushies or what have you costs too much. Not taking into account the cost of the supplies and the cost of the artisan's time. When you go around a craft fair and say, but I could make that, A, will you? And B, how much are those art supplies going to cost you? C, is it going to be as nice? And on top of all of that, how much time are you going to spend doing it? And to be able to produce any of these works in any kind of quantity means devoting most, if not all, of your free time to doing this over and above just a simple 40-hour work week. Artists may charge quite a bit for a lot of their work, but that's because they have to pay off their own debts. And they have the expertise and deserve a little bit of money for the fact that they went through all the trouble to learn how to do this and do it well. Exactly. It's the cost of expertise. Now off of our soapbox. So he goes across the river to Emory, getting back to our subject. Yeah. <laughs> right. Just to stop for a little bit about this. I was interested because when I had previously been reading it, I had always thought of the university being in Emre. However, as I was reading this, I started to see them more as twin cities that have complementary but opposed specialties. The university provides know-how and practical expertise such as medical work and engineering assistance to Emre, and Emre provides people at the university with the kinds of diversions that help them stay functional and sane. Help them to be the person that can do the hard work that they are doing. Sort of that uneasy rivalry between them also ends up making them both better. Like they both have this mutually beneficial arrangement, but neither one can actually admit that it's benefiting them. It's like grumpy old men to pull out a really old movie. Well, now I'm going to be a grumpy old man. <laughs> or the odd couple. And it's not to say that one city is better than the other, but just that they have complementary needs. Also, each represents a side of both. It's his creative side and his analytical side. And I don't think that we should have to choose between the two. Moving on, we get an explanation from Quoth as to why he has not spent the last two months in Emre every night. Because someone who grew up in a rude troop, who is so tied to his identity as a musician, who is so tied to the arts, why hasn't he been just taking in the arts? And it's because it is not about his enjoyment of other people performing. It is about him, because everything is about Quoth. Yeah, it's a very 
selfish depiction of him at this point. He's the equivalent of a writer who never reads books. And his description of his relationship with music, he explicitly ties to addiction. I like the fact that halfway through the book, we are getting the setup for what this resin, this thing that the sweet eaters crave is. Because at the end of the book, we get a little bit of payoff. It's Chekhov's resin. I would say Chekhov's narcotic. <laughs> As Denna eats a tinful of this stuff and becomes less than functional. And we don't know what long-term consequences that ends up having for her. It's something that doesn't really get brought up again. I don't think that there are any long-term consequences because Quoth specifically mentions that sweet eaters have unnaturally white teeth. And then he never mentions that about Denna when almost all of our descriptions of Denna are physical. Good point. So he winds up finding out about this Gaelic named Davy. And that name is just one letter off from Devil. We'll find out why. And we pronounce it Davy because we listened to the book four or five times before we actually read the physical copy. There's a lot of these that show up that I'm like, oh, oh, look at that. The way that that is spelled. Huh. Our initial expectation is probably going to be a gangster. Someone wearing... You know, fancy clothes surrounded by brutish men ready to crack knuckles and skulls in equal aplomb. Or at least someone who is not a pixie-like young girl with strawberry blonde hair that looks adorable. And of course, Quoth fixates on that physical appearance. Also, I've lived across the river from a rendering plant. Living above one? Oh. There's a reason the rent is cheap. Yeah. Yeah. And given her less than legal profession, sometimes can't be a chooser. It's interesting to me that Quoth references that this part of Emre, which so far his experience of has been clean and nice and the good parts, the parts that are for affluent people, shops and goods and taverns and not so seedy taverns. I mean, like student, rich student taverns. He says that this part of Emre reminded him of Waterside in Tarbien, which is to say when you have your means or your environment or your companions flipped from living on a rooftop and scrounging whatever you can and seeing the underbelly to being surrounded by people who are affluent even if you yourself are not, you see kind of that top side, that nice area. And you almost have a blindness for the stuff that is less savory. But it's always there if you know where to look. There is no city that doesn't have a less glamorous side because the fact is there are always going to be people who are desperate. There are always people who will prey on that desperation and some cities are going to have it more pronounced than others, but it's always there. It is telling that he says specifically, this was not smart. I was playing with fire. And playing with that devil association, one thing I noticed in this is that Davy 
speaks frequently in six-word sentences, as opposed to seven, which is sort of that perfect number. In the book of Revelation, seven is meant to be the perfect heavenly number, and six, because it is less, is meant to be both the fallen number, the human number, and the devil's number. And this is interesting to me because she's presenting a bargain. Everything that Davy presents is effectively asking not just for repayment, but something that will keep her client under her thumb. Instead of asking for collateral to secure the loan, she asks for blood. And it has already been made clear that part of someone, be it their hair, but especially their blood, in the wrong person's possession can lead to oh so many problems, especially if it is possessed by a skilled arcanist. And maybe not even a skilled arcanist, but anyone who is intent on malfeasance. Foth is perfectly fine with her terms, useless as they might be, until she asks for his blood. And that's a trip too far for him at this point. So he storms out, basically says, F you, I'll find it a different way. And he walks past the window of a pawn shop in which sits a crappy loot. Yep. Gear acquisition syndrome, everybody. It's real. <laughs> Even if his music is an addiction, it is not something he physically needs. It might be something that he needs for his mental health, which is still valid and real. I'm gonna be clear here. Denying yourself consistently over and over and over again to do the right thing or the smart thing. It's not good for your mental health to have to look at a $5 purchase and say, you know, I can't afford the thing that will make me feel better. I have to go with that Maslow's hierarchy of needs thing. I need shelter first. I need food. I need water. Sometimes we have to break that restriction. And I know in my case, sometimes I have to break that restriction spectacularly. This is why I own Rock Band. Because before I bought my Xbox, this is telling you it was 10 years ago, uh, but before I bought my Xbox, and before I bought Rock Band, I had been paying off a debt. And it finally got to a point where I had paid everything off and I had money earmarked for something sensible. And I said, screw it. <laughs> and I went and got myself, I don't know how much that would have been at the time, like over $500 worth of video game thing, which playing drums on Rock Band best thing that ever happened for my mental health at that moment. I feel bad for my downstairs neighbors. It reminds me of the last time I was out of work. My last paycheck came in just as I had gotten word that I had gotten a new job. And, you know, I was dealing with some uncertainty and everything and I needed something to blow off stress. And so I bought my first guitar and amplifier then and there when that paycheck came through with something that wasn't 100% settled, 
and where we hadn't budgeted and where we hadn't done all of this. But I agreed wholeheartedly at the time and I would do it again. Although at this point I would be like, maybe we should find one that's a little bit better. But I think both of us have done the same thing that Quoth does. We purchase the thing that's available that will get us by until we can get the thing that makes us happier. Yeah, we still have that guitar and that amp, but they're not the ones that I use on a day-to-day -day basis. But I still think fondly of them because they got me through a rough time. Also, I absolutely love that you fell in love with playing guitar. Those things were what helped make getting through the rough spot worth it. And I think Kvothe is kind of thinking about that a little bit here with the lute. This is what helps him to be the person he needs to be over and beyond just paying for tuition and all of that other stuff. He needed something to care about. He says he could have lived outside in the wet and the rain, but his loot deserved better because he buys the loot. We all knew as soon as he like buying that loot, he negotiates the price down and maybe in a unkind manner that is meant to make you think initially, well, screw the man. The person who is running this shop clearly has more means than I do, and therefore I deserve to have this less expensive because they are making plenty of money. He doesn't know how much was paid out to get that loot. He does not know what the rent is of the pawn shop. He doesn't know whether the person who's running the pawn shop has a family. He doesn't know what their needs are, what their debts are. He just sees, well, this person is successful, screw them. They can afford it. And there, again, with the cycle of debt, I think sometimes we feel like because we are economically depressed that we deserve better. And that anyone showing a modicum of success who is outwardly performatively doing better than we are somehow doesn't deserve it or that we deserve what they have. But it's usually, I'm screwed over, so I'm going to screw over someone else rather than I'm doing well, I'm going to help other people do well. It's also worth noting here, it's not that he's trying to get a good price for this loot, because he deliberately tries to devalue it by slightly down-tuning it a little bit and then claiming it's because of a broken neck or a cracked neck, which that's deceptive right there but he's not actually doing a good faith negotiation. I dislike the fact that he went so far as to, well, but I deserve this and I need this. So I am going to do everything I can to get this thing that I need, regardless of how it affects the person that I am negotiating with. But he seems proud of his ability to take this person from jovial and happy about his life as a pawnbroker, which is probably a mask. It's probably something that is meant to encourage people to purchase from him. It's probably a bit of a show, but the ability to take that person from happy to oh, disappointed at best, miserable, something, the way that all pawnbrokers look, Kvothe took delight in ruining that person's day. This is a side of Kvothe that I think oftentimes when one thinks about these sort of trickster characters 
often goes under interrogated whether this is something like the cast of Ocean's Eleven or Ferris Bueller or any number of other roguish figures. A lot of us have this fantasy that we can get away with things and that it doesn't really affect the person or people that the actions are being done to. While it's all well and good when they're going out of their way to con a criminal or somebody like that, just as often, the victims of these scams are real people who have real stakes. Think pyramid schemes. But again, with the cycle of debt, we honestly don't know if the person selling that loot lost money on it. We also don't know if Foth could have perhaps negotiated for this in a more ethical fashion. Or done a, how about I give you some now and continue to pay on it later. That's how I have a digital piano. We chose to pay it in installments. It was worth it. And I can't help but wonder if part of it is both coming from this social Darwinist background in Tarbian is something that he hasn't really gotten rid of. Well, when you consider that it was two months ago, it was a term ago. A term is two months. It was two months ago. Of course he's still in that mindset. It takes way longer than that to get out of the, oh my god, everything that I spend out of my pocket, I'm going to have to count and I'm going to remember this 15 years from now. Or however long it is. Probably no more than five. But whatever. I think this is an outgrowth of that. And lo and behold, this sends him right back to Davy. And suddenly he's a lot more amenable because now he's got skin in the game. He knows that he needs a place now. He doesn't have a choice. And so he takes the offer. And I do think that in a way, while it did put him into debt, it's better that he borrowed this money because then it meant that he had a place to stay. And the reason I say that is because while he could have toughed it out, being in a place where you are housing insecure and food insecure is not conducive to earning your education. Your education is not as important as your life, even if you think it is, even if it feels like it is. There were so many ways that he could have died from exposure. We don't know what time of year it is. He would have had nowhere to go, and he may have gone with Simon and Will and just pissed away any money he earned, trying not to have to curl up under a blanket under a bench. How is he going to do schoolwork? How is he going to do simple things like keeping his stuff and his clothes safe? He has an addiction to the school just as much as he has an addiction to that loot. One thing about debts that oftentimes I think gets under-discussed is that they represent a connection. So whether that's a fiscal connection or an emotional connection, it's not the worst thing in the world to feel like you owe something to someone else. And because of this, he feels more connected now to the city of Emre. And now that he has the loot, he can play, he can nurture that part of himself that he really hasn't been able to since the destruction of his father's loot. That connection now helps him to build something more out of himself. And if he manages it properly, it can be quite fruitful. 
Though we now have our fifth female character that is around for more than a chapter. Though only the fourth that is still around at this point. Which is a nice segue into our Phronemos of the Week. So this week it's my turn. And I picked Davy for our Phronemos. While she is definitely someone of rather questionable ethics, I found that she did have one interesting bit of practical wisdom about her, and that was her negotiating strategy. You'll notice that at no point did she ever try to deceive Kvothe about the nature of their arrangement. She gave explicit notice about what she could offer and what the terms of it were. I will say one thing. Future knowledge. There is no minimum. <laughs> but it's good for her business to have one. And she matter-of-factly states what she's willing to do. And when Kvothe says, hey, I can't do the minimum, she makes concessions for him. And they're good faith concessions. Now, she also knows that she has the freedom to walk away which is something that I think in a lot of negotiations you might find yourself forgetting about. There's always the option to leave the negotiating table. You can always say, hey, you know what? Let's stick with what we have here. It's okay to ask for things, even if you think they might be unreasonable, because there's always the chance that maybe it's not as unreasonable as you think it is. And if the other person says, I can't do that, they will then usually come back with something else that is still better than what they had been offering initially. And that's what gets you progress. And you have to recognize that you're moving towards something that both sides can live with. And I think oftentimes female characters are not allowed to bargain like that. They're not allowed to negotiate for the value of their services, their goods, their wares. So I thought it was rather refreshing to see a female character being in that strong negotiating position in a way that typically only men get to do. And I think it's a useful reminder that negotiation is something that is for everyone. I also like that although Kvothe describes her physically, initially, as a way of trying to disarm us, she is not using her physicality or her appearance to get what she wants out of Kvothe. There's no manipulation there. There's simply a statement of needs and abilities. My point, though, is that she's not being written in a way that uses her sexuality as a negotiating tactic. She's a fascinating character, and like Kvothe, she lives in sort of those moral gray areas and finds a way forward to live with some kind of integrity. That was a good choice. Thank you. You're welcome. Now it is time for us to take to heart the lessons of Master Elodin and learn something new about our world. I believe it's your turn this week? Yes. So what do you got for me? Interest me. Otherwise, more raspberries for you. Because mm. there's always the chance that you might get two. Mm. But I'm not worried about that. You're pretty interesting. So what do you have? One of the biggest challenges that VFX artists for TV and film face is creating realistic lighting on a real-world person or object that will appear in a scene with a digital background. Think green screen. 
This is why older movies that are shot on a green screen sometimes fail to make people and objects look and feel like they belong in their surroundings. But as technology evolves, new techniques are being developed to remove that disconnect and make even the most fantastical scenery look and feel grounded and real. TV shows like The Mandalorian are creating digital backgrounds and scenery in the Unreal Engine, which is software that was developed for the game industry and has been used to create some of the most visually stunning video games out there, like Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order, Abzu, and Final Fantasy VII Remake. Side note, it also went to make things like Yoshi's Crafted World. There are so many different things that you can do with a really good game engine. And with Unreal, it's less likely that you have to make compromises within the art style that you want to accommodate the processing of the game or the rendering of the scenery as you move through it. It's one of the things that Unreal has always been known for. Maybe it has a hard time with the fact that it is so high quality that sometimes the systems it's running on chug, but it can do amazing rendering. So instead of filming people against a green screen and adding effects and background in later, the actors, camera, and crew are filming on a light stage where LED screens are projecting a 3D tracked environment that can move and change perspective based on the camera's movements. There's even a sky above that creates accurate ambient light. This not only shortens production time and increases the believability of environments, but it also allows for more reflective objects to be in the scenes, like real life reflective objects like glassware or a highly polished metal. It makes it easier also for the actors because they are seeing a real environment and interacting with the things that are real and really going to be in that scene. As for the reflective objects, the reason that it's so much better is because it's reflecting accurate colors and backgrounds instead of a green screen that will have to be keyed out or hand-painted over. And it saves time and money and has a better product. It's always fascinating to hear how clever people come up with solutions for some difficult problems that a lot of people don't even think about. And yeah, I'm deeply fascinated by this stuff as well. So I think this counts as fascinating for me. And I think really for me also, the biggest thing is that it helps actors. I really key in on how the actors respond to it because they're able to then put themselves exactly in the position that audiences are gonna see on the screen so they can be in that world. I think that's really great. So yes, you've interested me. Only one raspberry for you. Yay. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. With that, it is time for you to tell us your seven words from the book. All right, so I picked one of the rare seven word sentences from Davy, and that is, you're paying interest on money you borrowed which I thought was a smart reframing of how she got around Quoth's negotiating tactic. He's saying, oh, but that's more than I need. And she's saying, but it would be what you borrowed. That's what you owe. That's what you would have agreed to. And I think that's a pretty smart way to actually move forward with that. And I thought it was a good rebuttal because he doesn't really have a good comeback to that. And characters who can leave Quoth without a good comeback are characters I enjoy. <laughs> so what are your seven words from life? 
Well, before I get into my seven words from life, I also tend to look at seven word sentences from the book on weeks that I am not presenting any. And there were a couple that I found that I really wanted to share with the audience, which I will share in picture form probably on Instagram. But since not all of you listeners are part of that community yet, plug, 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 plug. At Waystone Pod on Instagram. Plug, 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 plug. Anyway, <laughs> things that speak to me. Emory was a haven for the arts. Something that I think was also very astute and more self-aware from Quoth than we have seen pretty much ever. That's really what I was borrowing. Time. And then the moment at which we realize that Quoth is going to buy that loot. Could I take a look at it? <laughs> this is something that happened to me on my last guitar purchase. Don't go into a guitar store kind of thinking that you might want to buy a guitar and expect not to walk out with one. I tried out my guitar and it fit so nicely and it felt so good. And it, by its physical appearance, is completely incongruous to everything about how I play guitar. But it is comfortable and it is a great weight for me and the frets feel great and it feels nice to play. And I wouldn't own it if I couldn't have taken it off of the rack and played it at the store. That's why they let you play it. Obviously. <laughs> There's also, you're not big on trust, are you? Also said by Davey. I noticed that one as well. As for my words from life, a few weeks ago, as we left this room, or rather, as I left this room, you stayed behind, picked up your guitar, and said, I just want to get some music out. I thought it suited this little part well. It suits the next part even better, because that's when Kvothe starts playing at first for himself and then also for Ari. But I think, again, while not a physical need, I think his loot was an emotional and mental need. It's the thing that lets him be Kvothe, more than just a student, but an actual person. And I think he becomes better for it. I agree. And whether that be a hobby, or a video game, or a book, I think that we all need those kind of outlets. Because we can't be on all the time. And I think for the last few years, for Kvothe, he has been on all the time, on high alert, on hypervigilance, on I have to impress. He has been performing. Even if some of those performances have shown the real him, which I'd argue most of them don't, he needs something to get out of that. He needs a way for flow state to happen. I know, for instance, last night, I felt a little bit keyed up. Our cat was driving me nuts. He likes to get into a specific cabinet. And he really likes to get into that cabinet when we are doing things that don't involve him. And he doesn't want to sleep. Because he is like a toddler in the fact that he gets hyper-stimulated. And he won't settle. Even if you play with him for an hour. So 
I came upstairs and I practiced one, two, three, four. <laughs> I'm trying to see how many different musical instruments I practiced on. Because once again, this room is full of musical instruments. Most of them are mine. The Will is welcome to play any of them. I have the ones I like. He's also welcome to get more if he wanted them. Which is why I am trying to convince him that he needs to get pedals because he needs to just have things to play with. Yeah, I like my toys. But I get more. And he needs some. Anyway. And with that, I'd like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thank you for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next week on Tales from the Waystone as we discuss chapters 51 and 52 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of outlets. We'd like to extend a huge thank you to Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we have enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. And project management and writing, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod. Where you can get access to our show notes, custom digital posters, exclusive Patreon-only bonus pods, and other exciting items. And as always, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. How about I just blow a couple of raspberries and we'll be good? Nope, not saying that. <laughs> <laughs> but I might use it as an outtake. <laughs>